wow, here we are, y'all. Spiritual warfare and the heat is on. Amen? Or the AC is off, either way you want to put it. Spiritual warfare. I want to start out today, we're going to look at a passage in Matthew 16 and a number of other passages as well. But I want to start out to you with you today talking about a football player. How many of you remember a football player by the name of Reggie White? Reggie White. Yes. Yes, the Minister of Defense, Reggie White, one of the greatest defensive players in the history of football. He played, what team did he play for? Oh, yes, he played for the Philadelphia Eagles, or the Eagles, as you might say it, right? He also played for the Green Bay Packers, and he set records for sacking the quarterback. He was powerful. He was fast. He was quick. He was almost unstoppable. One of the greatest players in the history of football. But it's interesting, the strategy that some teams took in going against Reggie White was a very interesting one. Some teams, instead of I would think, let's run away from this guy who's too big, he's too strong, he's too fast, let's run away from them. But many teams actually set their strategy to run right at where Reggie was. And I look at that and shake my head and say, why in the world would you do that? You're running right at this this mountain of a man who is powerful, why would you run towards him? But the strategy had a reason. The idea was this. Because Reggie was so fast at getting off the ball and so quick at getting upfield to the quarterback, the idea was that if we run a play right at him, he's already up the field, we're running past him, and now he's got to look back and follow the play. I don't know if it worked very well. He led the league in sacks many times and was one of the greatest players ever, but it was a thought anyway. Let's try to run at Reggie. Well, we're not going to talk a lot more about football today, but we are going to talk about an attack strategy. It's not Reggie White's strategy or some football team's strategy, but it's Jesus' attack strategy against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We talked about in previous sermons in this series uh, that there are Elohim or other spiritual forces of wickedness all around us, small g gods that the Bible talks about that are wreaking havoc in the earth. They are doing everything in their power to distract, to defile, and to destroy. But we'll see in this passage today that Jesus goes right into ground zero of these spiritual forces, and he comes out, We'll see it in full swag mode against these spiritual forces. And his intention is not distract, defile, and destroy, but it is to redeem, to remake, and to restore all things to the glory of God. So that's what we're going to look at today. Stand with me for just a moment as we look at Matthew chapter 16. We'll look at a few verses here. We'll look at other verses today as well. Matthew 16, 13 through 20 Matthew 16:13 through 20 let's read the scripture together nice and loud robust starting at verse 13 when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is they replied some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets But what about you, he asked. 
Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this revealed to you in blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Amen. Amen. Today, we're going to be talking about attacking the heart of the enemy. Attacking the heart of the enemy. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that in these few moments that we have together, that you will use this for your glory, that you will edify your church and you will terrify your enemies, Lord God. Do your work and speak to your people that your name might be glorified in and through a people who are committing themselves wholly unto you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Attacking the heart of the enemy. We've, this is the third week in this particular series on spiritual warfare. The first time we got together, we talked about understanding the battlefield. And we looked at the worldview, the Christian worldview that understands that there are spiritual forces that are right involved in every way with your daily life and my daily life. But we saw in that as well that with all of these spiritual forces, there is one who is over all, and that is Yahweh the Lord. Amen? So we do not need to live in fear. The second time we came together on this series, we looked at what's behind the war. And the idea of that was that indeed we saw from Psalm 82 that there are these other creatures, spiritual Creatures called Elohim in the Bible over 230 times. These other gods with a small g that are trying to disrupt in every way. But God is still going to win the war. And today we're going to look at the reality that Jesus has a plan of attack. And in that plan of attack, he's not just playing defense, but he is offensively going after the enemy. And so the main point today is simply this. Jesus boldly confronted the enemy on his home turf. We'll see that in this scripture. And we must be equally bold in confronting spiritual forces. Somebody ought to say amen. We ought to be bold in confronting those forces. Certainly our Lord and Savior Jesus was. So let's just jump right into this text. I want to look, first of all, at verse 13 in Matthew 16. Scripture says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? My first point is simply this. Jesus boldly confronted the enemy on his home turf. 
And what, what I want to look at in this passage is some of the geography of this passage. Why is this happening here? Many of you are familiar with this story of Jesus taking these disciples aside to Caesarea Philippi and Peter making the great confession, you are the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of the living God. But this happens at a particular place. And Jesus takes them to this place, Caesarea Philippi, that is off the beaten path for Messiah. We'll see a map in a little while, and we'll see why it's off the beaten path. It's a place that the Scripture never records another time of Jesus going to Caesarea Philippi or this region. But he's here, and Peter makes the great confession here. Caesarea Philippi is in the Old Testament land that was called Bashan which is known as the place of the serpent. There are two cities in Bashan, Ashtaroth and Endri, that were believed by the Canaanites and in the Ugaritic literature, and the Jews knew about this. This was called the place that was the entryway to the underworld, or the gates of Sheol, or the gates of Hades. This is where Jesus takes his disciples and asks them, who do you say that I am? He goes into the place of the serpent. He goes into the place that's known as the entry to the underworld or the gates of Hades. Right into this place, Caesarea Philippi. This was a city that was on, on near Mount Hermon. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But Mount Hermon and, and Caesarea Philippi was, was a city that was originally made and, and built in order to honor the god Pan. And it was called Panias. It's, there's a city there today. It's now called Banias. But it was called Panias and it was dedicated to this God who brought the springs that begin the Jordan River in Caesarea Philippi today. But not only was that there, but also in, in Jesus' time, a few years before Jesus came on the scene... There was a temple built there for Augustus Caesar, a temple for Augustus, and this became a great city and was renamed Caesarea Philippi. Herod built that city and renamed, uh, built that temple and renamed the city. Let's look at the next uh, slide. Let's, I want to look at this map for a moment, just so you get a picture of it. You see, in the upper right-hand corner is Caesarea Philippi, if you've got good eyes. If you don't, just trust me that it's up there. Caesarea Philippi on, on near Mount Hermon in the land of Bashan, the place of the, ser of the serpent, the gates of Hades. Jesus goes on to ground zero of the enemy and asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And on ground zero of the enemy, the very gates of hell, they say, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus never goes to this place any other time that we see in Scripture. And Jesus boldly has his disciples proclaim who he is on ground zero of the enemy. Listen, brothers and sisters, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that reminds me of Paul saying these words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a power of love and of self-discipline. We cannot be those who are afraid of the enemy because we know the one who rules over all 
Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives uh, an application to verse 7 and verse 8. He says, so because we're, we have a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline, he says, so never be ashamed to tell others about the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the second part of the message, but I'm putting this in here right now. We need to be bold in our witness for Jesus. Jesus, if you know him, if you know what he's taken you from, if you know what he's done in your life, there is no reason not to be bold to proclaim the great name of your Lord and of your Savior. God is good all the time. Now let's look more in this passage, verse 17 and 18. Look at what Jesus says to Peter after Peter makes this confession. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Verse 18 says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Somebody say, my church. My church. Now, that doesn't mean it's your church. It doesn't mean it's my church as the pastor. It's not a, a church that belongs to the elders of the session or the deacon or leaders. Jesus says, this is my church. He says, I am building my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of hell will never, ever, ever overcome the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it looks like it. Sometimes it looks like we're on life support. Sometimes it looks like we're just about to go out. But Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not prevail. Brothers and sisters, you need to know that in your own life. The gates of Hades will not prevail if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I think many times most of you have heard this scripture, and many times when we think of it, we think of it this way, like here I am, and the gates of hell are coming after me, and Jesus said they won't prevail. But let me ask you this, when's the last time you saw some gates moving somewhere? Gates are stationary. Gates do not move anywhere. Gates are there to protect something. The gates of hell are there to protect what the enemy thinks belongs to him. But Jesus says, we're not in a defensive posture as Christians, as believers in Christ. But he says, the gates of hell can't stop you from getting in there and snatching out whoever God would want to snatch out of that place. We are not a defensive people. We are on offense. We are attacking the enemy. We are taking back what belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. That has a lot of application for people in here, but we need to ask God, take back my children, take back my family, take back my marriage, take back everything and anything you want to take back, Lord. The God that we serve says we are on the offensive side of the ball and we are attacking the enemy. I love what he says here. He says, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That word overcome means to prevail over something, to be able to defeat something. It has this implication. The implication is this. That the one who overcomes has greater strength than the one he's overcoming. 
Now, we've said before, do you have greater strength than these supernatural enemies of God? Satan and all these hosts and all these little Elohim in yourself, you do not have greater power. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are able to tread over the enemy and you are able to take back ground for God. In him and in him alone. Jesus' words to Peter. Now, let's look at a a second area where we see Jesus... Uh, uh, boldly confronting the enemy on his home turf. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17, Jesus' transfiguration. I'm just going to read the first two verses here. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain. Say, a high mountain. Say that one more time. Somebody got it. A high mountain. There we go. He led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. I cannot imagine what it was like to be Peter, James, or John on that day. Jesus goes up this high mountain, and he just picks three of his disciples. As we read through the Gospels, we know this is the inner circle of the inner circle of Jesus' uh, people. And he brings them up this mountain, and he is transfigured into the brightest and most radiant light that they could ever imagine. And beyond that, what is happening in this transfiguration is Jesus is going up this mountain, and he is just showing off his glory. He's showing off his glory. It has a life-changing, eternal impact on these men. Peter talks about it in one of his epistles. He talks about where God did this, and then the voice comes from heaven, and he says, this is my son. Do what he says. So we see in this passage, Moses had gone up a mountain, you'll remember, before, and he saw the Lord, and he came back with a radiance on him of the reflected glory of Almighty God. But Jesus' glory is not a reflected glory at all. It is the very glory of God himself that they see. And he does this, I believe, on Mount Hermon. Let's look at that mountain for a second. This is a picture, if you can see, the snow-capped Mount Hermon. Caesarea Philippi is at the base of this mountain. Now, there is dispute about where the transfiguration took place. If you go to Israel, I haven't been yet, but I can't wait to go. There are churches of the transfiguration at Mount Tabor, which is far to the south, not close to Caesarea Philippi. But the Bible says that Jesus went up on a high mountain. This mountain, Mount Hermon, is unlike anything else in the land of Israel. It's over 9,200 feet high. It's snow-capped for most of the year. Mount Tabor is about 1,800 feet high. It it is more a big hill in the middle of a plain. And also, archaeologists have found on the top of Mount Hamor that at the time of Jesus, there was a garrison of soldiers that was on the top of that mountain. And the, the picture we get here is that Jesus is taking these three men to be alone, to be away from anyone and everyone else to reveal his glory to them. So I believe there's good reason to think that his transfiguration took place on that mountain, on Mount Hermon. 
Caesarea Philippi is at the base, to the god Pan, and to Augustus Caesar, these temples are made. And on this mountain and around this mountain are over 20 temples to other gods, gods of Baal, Asherah, Molech, and others. There are all these temples to all these gods in this place. And Jesus goes right up that mountain at that time and says, here I am. Check me out. Look at my glory. That's where Jesus goes. Look at Psalm 68, verses 15 and 16, quickly. Psalm 68. And I'm going to give you, you'll notice at the bottom there, it says LSV. That's the Larry Smith version. That's the translation I'm giving you. Actually, what I'm giving you is the ESV, and I've just changed one word or two in in the text. But, O mountain of the gods. Mountain of Bashan. When it says mountain of Bashan, it's talking about Mount Hermon. Oh, many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Now, in the ESV, it reads, Oh, mountain of God. In the NIV, it's much less literal and it reads, Majestic mountain. But I am translating it, Mountain of the Gods. Why is that? The actual terminology in Hebrew is Har. The word Har means mountain. Har Elohim. And we talked about a few weeks ago that Elohim can either be singular or plural. It can mean God, as in the one true and living God, or it can mean the many gods, the gods with the little g, who are created beings and who are under the one true and mighty God. Why am I saying that it says mountains of the gods? Because what you see in this psalm, and you see it in other places, there is a a comparison between Mount Bashan and Mount Zion. Look at verse 16. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain? It's interesting that it talks about the many peaks of Hermon, even as there are many gods represented on this mountain. He says, at the mount that God desired for his abode. So he says, you're looking at hatred, oh, this great high mountain, at this other mountain. What mountain is he talking about? Mount Zion. Now, again, I've never been to Israel. How many people here have been to Israel? I see a few Israelis in the house. Praise God. Glad you've been there. I was talking with Pastor Tim this week, and Pastor Tim and Amy had a chance to go there some years ago. And he told me, and I've seen this, but... He told me firsthand account, when you look at Mount Zion, you're not like, oh, wow, this is a great mountain. You're like, oh, that's a hill with, 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 with some things on top of it, where the temple was and all this. But Mount Zion, when you look at it, is not an impressive mountain. It's not a high mountain of itself. It is impressive and it is majestic because of who is on it, not because of its own size. Because Jesus said, because God said, I'm going to dwell in this place. I'm going to dwell in this place. And so on Mount Zion, you see this hatred, it says, verse 16 again. Why do you look with hatred? He's saying to this mountain, Mount Mount Bashan or, 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 or Mount Hermon, Why do you look with contempt? Why do you look with hatred? NIV says, why do you look with envy at Mount Zion? He's speaking not simply to a mountain. He's speaking to all the gods that are represented on that mountain. He's saying all of these false gods, you're looking down on little old Mount Zion because you're this high, majestic, 
peak in the north of Israel, and you're looking down on this little hill where God chose to dwell. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. God is not impressed by what's on the outside. God is not looking for people who are impressive to the world. He is looking for people who are humble and will submit themselves under the hand of the living God, and he will do impressive things through those people. God is not fixated on the outside, but he's looking for humble and submitted people through whom he will do his great works. Mount Hermon, Jesus goes up this mountain, this mountain that represents all these false gods, and he declares himself, he unveils his glory right at ground zero of the enemy. This is our God. This is spiritual warfare. You can't do spiritual warfare by running away from the enemy. You've got to get right in there and do your work. So let's look at the second piece of what we're talking about today. The second point. We must be equally bold in confronting spiritual forces. Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. Many of you know this scripture and we're going to look at the context of this scripture as well second chronicles 16 and verse 9 scripture says and this is from the esv for the eyes of the lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support somebody say strong support strong support i don't know about you today but i'll i'll tell on myself i need some strong support does anyone else feel like you need some strong support? I mean, I'm not talking about any, like, wimpy little, oh, I'm going to help you a little bit. I need God to help me out in this life. I need strong support. And he says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support. To who? To those whose heart is blameless toward him. He says, I'm giving strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. The NIV reads it, who are fully committed to him. The word there in Hebrew is the word shalem. Now that should remind you of another Hebrew word. Does shalem remind you of another Hebrew word? Anybody here? Shalom. Amen. Peace. And, and the idea of of shalom and shalem is not just peace in terms of the absence of war, but it is completeness, it is wholeness, it is being completely intact, untouched, complete, whole, perfect, at peace and fully devoted. Here's the last part, look at this, having great love and zeal with implied obedience. See, the idea of those who are set apart from God, for God, those whose heart is blameless toward him. This is a people that God is looking to support. God is looking to support some people in this earth. He's looking to give them strength. He's looking to give them energy. He's looking to give them opportunity. He's looking at putting himself into those people. But it is a particular people. It's not just anyone, and it's not just any Christian. 
It is those who are saying to God, I want to be set apart for your purpose. I want you to use me. We saw a few weeks ago in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, all these characteristics of faith and knowledge and godliness and all of these things in the scripture saying you should be increasing in these qualities. And he says, because if you are, you will not be ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, it's possible to be in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet to be ineffective or unfruitful. And I don't know about you, but I want my life to bear fruit. I hope you do as well. Shalem, to be blameless, to be fully committed. Look at this next piece. What does a fully committed heart look like? We use the term, this is the $50 theological term, sanctification. It has nothing to do with your sink. Sanctification. Sanctification is, look at this, the cooperative work between God and a human being by which a person is progressively freed from the power of sin and made more like Jesus Christ. This is important. This is a cooperative work between a human being and their God. It is not God just zapping someone and all of a sudden you are sanctified. You're growing in Christ. But it is a cooperative work. In other words, it's a work that you take part in. You have to come to God and say, here I am, Lord. Help me. I need you. You're the only one that can take me from this point to the other point. I desperately need the Lord see this in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation, he says, with what? With fear and with trembling. Work out your salvation. That is something for you and I to do. And then he says, for it's God who's at work in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. Listen, this is a work between God and a human being. We need to submit ourselves before God and say, here I am. Lord, use me. Lord, empower me. Lord, strengthen me. Listen, sometimes we have gotten so caught on justification, that is being set apart, being declared not guilty before God, that is our salvation in the first place, that we've forgotten that Jesus saved you and he saved me for a reason. Not just so that one day in the sweet by and by, I'll go to heaven and be with him, but he saved us so that he would be glorified in our lives. He wants us to look more and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not be going through our entire lives and not seeing progression in Christ-likeness in our lives. He saved you for a reason. He saved me for a reason. And that that Christ-likeness is not just that I'm not doing this sin or that sin anymore. It's that I am becoming a mad threat to the enemy. That I am becoming someone who is bold in the gospel, who's able to go in the face of the enemy, who's able to go to those who are not yet Christians and boldly witness and proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. See, this is what sanctification is about. I also use the other word sanctified, meaning to be fully set apart for God alone, to to be made holy, to eliminate that which is incompatible with 
holiness. Go back to the other slide real quick. So I just want to look at this verse again for a minute. Go back to the, yeah, there you go. Second Chronicles 16.9. Look at the end of that verse. It says, you have done foolishly in this. From now on, you will have wars. This verse that we look at, the first part of it, and get all happy about it, is actually a word of rebuke to one of the greatest kings of Judah, one of the greatest kings in the history of the Bible, King Asa. King Asa had ruled the first 35 years of his rule as the king as one of the greatest kings in the history of Judah. He fought great armies but trusted in God, not in the power of his swords and shields or horsemen, but in the power of God. They, they had great reforms of coming back to the word. This man, this is how serious he was about the things of God. In, verse, in chapter 15, it says that he even deposed his grandmother from the position of queen mother because she was worshiping idols. you got to have some God in you if you're going to mess with grandma and take her off her throne. Asa was serious about God. He's one of the greatest kings of all the kings that we see in the Bible. And yet here in chapter 16 of 2 Chronicles, they're being threatened. Judah is being threatened. And he makes an alliance with Assyria. And God is not pleased. He had faced greater enemies in the past. And he said, he cried out to God, God, will you not glorify your name? We don't believe in the power of men or of horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And here he is in his older years. And he's saying, now we've got to trust on this alliance. Let me just say this to the over 40 crowd at New Life. I think there's three or four of you here today who are over 40. We don't get to take off time as we get to that last part of our lives. As we get a little older, we don't be able to look back and say, well, God did all this with me and through me, and he did all this. Now I get to rest or retire. Listen, you may retire for a job, that from a job, that's a blessing, but you don't, re- you don't retire from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe me when I say this, the enemy doesn't say, well, he's 60 now, he's 65 or he's 70, whatever age it is, I guess I'll just leave him alone now. He doesn't take time off, he doesn't check out, he doesn't clock out. But we are those who need to to push through to the very end as believers in Jesus Christ. And let me say this to younger people here as well, those who are under 40. Let me say this. This is talking about this older king, but but let me say this. Many people are not progressing in their walk with the Lord, and we're wondering what is going on. If you're not growing, if you're not beginning to, to see Uh, The Lord formed in you more fully. What is happening? And many times what's happening is you've never really had an encounter with the living God. Because you see over and over and over again in the scripture, when someone has an encounter, a real encounter with the living God, it changes them from the inside out. We need to be people who have encounters with God, whether we're 15, whether we're 25, whether we're 75, we need to have fresh encounters with the living God. 
Let me close with this. Go to the last slide, if you will. Serving other gods. 2 Kings 17 and 33 says they worship the Lord, but they also serve their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. My wife was just sharing this scripture with me this week, all week long, and it just got in my heart, and I needed to share it with us today. This is talking about a situation when Israel had been uh, uh, deposed by God. They'd been deported to other lands, and, and the king of Assyria brought in other people into the land of Israel. And what happened at first was that lions came in and began to, to kill people and eat people. And he said, what's going on? And the answer was, we don't know about the God of that land. We don't know how to serve him. And so they went back to the Israelites who had been taken out of the land. They said, let's get some priests and send them back in there so that they'll know how to rightly worship the God of Israel. And so the priest comes in, but this scripture says they worship the Lord. Okay, we'll do that stuff, but they also serve their own gods. They worship Yahweh, but they also serve Baal. They also serve Asherah. They also serve Molech. They serve the other gods as well. We're going to worship God, but we're going to worship these other gods and serve them as well. Listen, brothers and sisters, I think this is a good description many times of the church today in the United States of America. We want to say, I'm worshiping the one true God, but we've got lots of other gods we're not even aware of. What are some of those gods in American Christianity? We have deified the idea of freedom, haven't we? I am free to do what I want, to say what I want, to go where I want. I have perfect freedom because it is my life. And yet, as a Christian, the Bible says, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. This idea of untethered freedom, our freedom is always tethered to the will of God as believers. We've made a God out of money. If I just have enough in the bank, then I can rest easy and my life is good. We've made a God out of money. We've made a God out of comfort. I just want to be comfortable, but you're at New Life Church and it's 97 degrees in the sanctuary today. I'm sorry your God is not here if comfort is your God. And we've made a God out of individualism. It's interesting, we heard from our brother last week, Pastor Delitzo from Malawi, Africa, and they don't have the idea of individualism in their culture. And many cultures around the world don't have this rugged individualism of America. Things, even decisions, important decisions are made in community. And God is calling us back to community. We can talk about my truth all we want, but the truth of God is the truth that rules. All of these different gods that we serve. But brothers and sisters, as we're doing spiritual warfare, God is calling us to be a people that are fully committed to him and to his agenda. It's not just about going to heaven someday. It's about living a life that matters on the earth for the Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in my life in my family, in my community, in my church, 
as it is in heaven. Amen. Let me just close with these ideas. Next week, I'm going to talk about knowing the enemy's scheme. So we're going to take a a look from the scripture at how the enemy tends to work uh, against us. But as we talk about what we've been going through today, we've got to get serious not just about playing defense with the devil, but about doing damage to the enemy. God's not calling us to lay back and play defense. But he wants us to take back those things that belong to God. On Mount Hermon, all these temples to all these false gods, and Jesus says, I am the God of this place. I am the God of the whole world. I want back what is mine. And we've got to have that same audacity as believers to do this. Brothers and sisters, we need to change the status quo in our own lives. That's where I'm coming back as I close to the message from last week that we heard from Pastor DeLitzo. I've talked to a number of people who were very convicted regarding particularly regarding fasting, amen, and and his deep, nuanced definition of what fasting was. You remember that? Stop eating food, right? Stop eating food. So what I want us to do this week, if you are able at all, I want us to fast on Friday of this week, if you can. If another day is better for you, then fast another day. Fast as much as you can. Now, it depends on your medical condition and other things. But if you can, a total fast with just water. I'm not going to keep water from anybody. But if you can do that, if that's not healthy for you, look at something that is healthy for you. But I would love us to fast. We need to change the status quo with the enemy. And I'm also going to invite folks, if they want to, you can do this anywhere, but if you'd like to, to come to my house on Friday night. And we're going to do a half night of prayer from 8 p.m. to 12 to 12 midnight. We're going to pray and get it in with God. So whoever can do that. Now, I don't have all these questions answered about child care. What are we doing with this, that, and the other thing? But if you can, come out for even a portion of that time or all of that time. We would love to have a group of people at our home on Friday night from 8 p.m., to 12 to 12 midnight to get it in with God and to begin to attack the enemy through prayer and fasting. Amen? Amen. I hope some of you will be able to join with me that night. We'll put the address and everything online so you'll be able to see it. Let me pray as we close today. Father God, we thank you again for your grace, your love, and your mercy toward us as your people. We ask, oh God, that you will help us in this spiritual warfare, Lord God, to not just fight against the enemy with our hands up defending, but Lord God, that we would plunder his camp. That we would go to ground zero of what the enemy is trying to do in our families, in our church, in our community, in our marriages, and in so many other places. And we would say, it needs to stop now. God, we pray that you'll move. And do a mighty work. And that 
No one could say anything else, but God has done this. Have your way, Lord God. Glorify your name. Encourage and strengthen your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.